session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra uh, on Instagram Live for the show. So I won't be taking any calls. Going to get right to the books, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also join the book club discussions Mondays at 1 p.m. on my Clubhouse page or my Clubhouse uh, room. Uh, every Monday, 1 p.m. Los Angeles time. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show, uh, I actually don't have my hands on it, but it's supposed to arrive tomorrow. It's called Noise by Daniel Kahneman, Olivier Siboni, and Cass Sunstein. Uh, I'm a big fan of Daniel Kahneman, his book Thinking Fast and Slow, and other things I've read by him or hearing him uh, give lectures. He's just an incredible thinker. And so I wanted to read his newest book as soon as possible. Ordered it when I heard about it, uh, I think a month or two ago. So it should be in my hands tomorrow. If I don't get it tomorrow, I might have to pick another book, but more than likely Noise by Daniel Kahneman, Olivier Siboni, and Cass Sunstein will be the book of the week for this week that I'll discuss on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight was a fascinating book. Uh, I really can't recommend it highly enough. I'll tell you the name of it and then I'll I'll rave about it a bit more. But it is Work by James Suzman. Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots by James Suzman. And it was really fascinating book. Uh, really a book that makes you think and rethink about the ways we approach something so fundamental as work in our life, in our society, um, and in our own daily lives. And to me, it was really uh, made me think about things in, in lots of ways that I'll, I'll talk about uh, tonight and really makes you become aware of the history of something. And so when we look at the history, one of the things people commonly say, which is very true, is that we need to understand, we need to know our history so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, which is very true. We need to understand what's happened because we can repeat the mistakes. Of course, even learn from the things that did go well. Very often, similar types of things repeat in history. So the more we understand what has happened in the past, the better we can make sure we don't repeat those same mistakes. Sometimes we might think, hey, we should try this. And then we look in history and we see people have tried that before and it failed miserably or it was really bad or uh, maybe actually went well. And so we can, uh, you know, learn from that past. So that's very important. But another reason it could be so important to understand our history is to understand how we got to where we are today and also to understand that it didn't have to be the way it is, the way things are now. So that even though we might say, well, this is the world, this is the natural order of things, very often we feel that way because the system seems so clearly there. But when we look at how we got to where we are, we can recognize it doesn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way, and it wasn't always this way. And so in this 
description of the history of human beings and even really other animals when it comes to this concept of work, James Suzman does a great job of helping to explain and to give some understanding to the history of work throughout human history. So to me, it was it was fascinating and I really enjoyed it. So, you know, even if we look at this concept of work, you know, if we have a lot of connotations. When we hear work, we tend to think of a job, um, a uh, you know, something that we make money for a lot of people, something they don't want to do, or we try to avoid if we can. And all those things might be true for many of us in today's society. But if we try to understand what work even is, essentially, it's what we do or any organism does to get the energy it needs to survive or to do something for survival. And I'm reminded of in Mark Solm's book, um, when he, in the hidden spring, talking about consciousness and looking at feelings, one of the things he talked about in relation to this work idea is that when we get out of homeostasis, that's a demand for work to get back to homeostasis, get back to the set point we want to get to. But looked at in also another way, and which relates to that, is that work is something we do to get the energy we need to survive. And and so we see this in all living beings, even bacteria in some ways have to do work. They do different things at different times to survive. But of course, as beings get more complex, we have to do more to be able to fuel our bodies and to survive. But also the bigger we get, the more things we can do and the more intelligent we get, the more ways that we can do them. But in this fundamental way, work is this type of um, function to do something, to exert some energy, to actually get more energy in some way. And also related to the hidden spring, the theme of empathy or the concept of empathy was discussed in this book that we're trying to capture energy in a way. And in order to do that, it would take some work. So we need work to survive, to capture energy, to do the things we need to do. And if we think about human beings, we tend to think, well, that's why we do everything that we're doing, which is kind of true. But what's interesting is James Suzman has spent years or has has spent in the past, I'm not, I'm not sure currently he, he is, but living amongst hunter-gatherer uh, tribes or communities that are still around in Southern Africa. So he has spent time with what we think or believe, um, you know, or how our ancestors lived. So this is, again, James Susman, the author of the book Work that I'm talking about tonight. So he spent time with them and saw how they lived. And when he looked at how much time they spent in what we might consider work, the type of work needed to survive, to provide the fuel they needed to live, he saw that the adults were typically doing about 15 hours a week in order to do what was necessary to survive. So 15 hours a week. And for me, this is quite fascinating because oftentimes when we think about hunter-gatherer tribes or we think about our ancestors um, living in the, you know, in the savannah trying to survive, we tend to think of this story of um, individuals who are barely making it and constantly on the cusp of not surviving or surviving and all of them, so many of them dying because they didn't have enough to eat. And what he saw was nothing of that sort. They were very comfortable. They were not actually very anxious or stressed about having enough food to eat to survive. They 
did essentially 15 hours a week and they were able to make it quite well. And and to me, that was eye-opening to realize that or recognize that. I'd heard some things like that, but maybe not in as much detail as he described here, that are, from myself, I can say, this misconception that we had to work so hard to survive, which is why we still work, you know, 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week. Uh, it's not true. So it's not this natural human tendency. So again, because things are so entrenched in our way of life now, we can often think that this is just the way humans have always been. This is the way it has to be. If we don't work 40 hours a week, it's not natural. It's not going to be okay. But what he saw was essentially that our the, the current hunter-gatherers, which essentially is probably what most of our ancestors lived before urban types of development, agriculture, things of that sort, they didn't have to work so incredibly hard to survive. They had more time to do other things, to to interact with each other, to to tell stories to each other, all, all types of things like that. So um, to me, that was very interesting, I think, important to look at, okay, how did we get to where we are? Because it's quite puzzling. And so he talks about how for uh, some people studying these hunter-gatherer groups, they actually said these were the first affluent society because they were living comfortably. They had enough. They were living essentially in abundance. So again, it puts on its head this misconception many of us can have that hunter-gatherers, they were barely surviving. Uh, They were making it. And it also introduces this concept of what does it mean to be affluent, which is quite interesting. Because usually when we think of being rich or poor, we think about having let's say, a lot of money or not having a lot of money or having assets and things like that. But really, when we think of what it means to be poor, it just means that you don't have as much as you would want to have, or you have these wants that are not met based on your material needs. But what he found and what other others have found is that these individuals are quite happy and okay with what they have. Um, now, they might not have this iPhone I'm using currently to be on Instagram Live and all this other technology we think of as so important, but they are quite comfortable and happy with what they have. So who is the impoverished ones? They who are happy with what they have or most of us who think we need and want more constantly because of what we've created in our civilization now. So that's a very interesting for me, an interesting point to consider when we look at how we live life and how things are, that it doesn't have to be this way. And so he does discuss various issues and factors that contributed to uh, things like agriculture coming about. And that's a big turning point in human history, because also in these hunter-gatherer types of societies, there isn't a lot of surplus. They hunt and they hunt enough and they eat it and they're fine and everyone gets some of the meat and they're okay and they'll hunt again next time and they have other foods that they eat as well, but they don't store anything. So they there isn't this sense of trying to get more because there's no need for it. Um, and they're very strongly egalitarian and egalitarian means uh, things are equally distributed. So there's a strong sense of egalitarianism in these types of uh, societies, which again, to me, is a sign of advancement, morality. We tend to think of oftentimes the primitive people of these types of, you know, hunter-gatherers or our ancestors as more primitive, primitive than us. But to me, who is the more priv- primitive one? The group that has so much more, yet has many of its citizens not doing well, 
and barely surviving or not surviving from not having enough, or another society where everyone is taken care of. To me, we would be primitive in a moral sense compared to, to them. And so everyone was doing okay. He actually said there were some interesting things, you know, people, uh, you know, we think about cu- cultural customs that always are going to exist. And some of the groups he lived in, he talked about how to make sure no one got a big head or felt too good about themselves in the way of putting themselves above others. There was this way of belittling the hunt, or I forgot what it was called, but basically making fun of the hunt. So if someone brought a giraffe, rather than being, oh, this big giraffe, it's going to have so much meat for us, they would talk it down in a in kind of almost a playful way, but teasing it that, oh, that's I think that's the smallest giraffe I've ever seen, or I don't know if that's going to be in enough food. I heard him doing an interview for my, for my mother-in-law. He said, you know, someone joked something like that. So it's this sense that um, they wanted to make sure that egalitarianism is almost, they were in a sense vigilant about it or very aware that you don't want any one person to to get too full of themselves, even if it's if they get too much stature or status in the community. Um, so they were almost aggressively, in a way, keeping that egalitarianism. But so with the advent of agriculture, it also created this possibility for surplus. And what we also saw happen in this transition is we went from almost everyone sharing the work but once we got into agriculture and, and things started to change and slowly then we, it took some time, but then t- developed into cities, it was that few people were doing most of the manual labor or the work that it took to provide the food. And lots of other people, and sometimes as a small portion, um, didn't have to work at all. So we saw not just an unequal distribution of wealth, but we also started to see an unequal distribution of work in the hard work, which we still see today. But that started to become possible where you had people who were farming and maybe it was many of the people. And there's some people that were elites for whatever reason, and they didn't have to work. And so this brought to mind when I was reading um, this aspect or these parts of the book, a wonderful book I read last year by Thomas Piketty, Capital and Ideology, where one of the main theses of that book was that throughout history, Uh, really more recent human history based on what this book is talking about, but in this recent few thousand years plus, there's always been great inequality where most people didn't have a lot or a lot of people didn't have a lot. And then a few had a lot as far as wealth, power, status, comfort, all that. And always throughout history, there were justifications or these ideologies, thus the title of the book, to justify why things were actually, it's funny, justify why things were so really unjust to try to make it seem fair. Well, these are the descendants of God. The kings have been descendants of God. So of course they have to be treated this way. Uh, We can't, you know, do anything else. Or these people are from a special caste, you know, in certain, let's say Indian cultures, or uh, there's some reason why this inequality actually makes sense or it has to be this way. But unfortunately we can see that there's always uh, a bogus reasoning to it. And even currently, We still have that. One of the ways we see it now, we still have some of these types of elite, um, inborn ways of being elite, but also the myth of meritocracy. Now, I'm not arguing that there's no meritocracy in the world, meaning that nothing or, you know, no amount of wealth or success is due to people working harder or doing better things. Of course, there is some of that. But the degree of the uh, inequality 
cannot be justified by merit alone, that these people are working that much harder or are contributing that much more to the world to have so much more than others. I think in the book he cited a statistic, something like, I believe, was it the 1% one, 1 had 45% of the wealth? Something like that. 1% of the human population right now owns 45% of the wealth. So I don't think anyone could argue that this is something based on merit alone. The system itself ha has considerable issues. Now, I'm just kind of scratching the surface with this book. And because, as I said, it's so fascinating, interesting, I want to continue the discussion. So after the break, I'll talk some more on the book Work by James Suzman. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Work uh, by James Suzman. Work, a deep history from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots. So uh, before the break, I was talking about how with the advent of agriculture, we saw some pretty big changes in society in the sense that now we could have accumulation of wealth. We could store things for the future. But, um, you know, that created its own issues that led to the lack of egalitarianism or this inequality, which continues to this day. But it also started to create these trends about how we work and how much we work. So it's interesting to think that hunter-gatherers need 15 hours a week to take care of themselves. But most of us now, if I say you work 15 hours a week, people will say you're being lazy or not working hard uh, and a whole bunch of other things. You know, uh, even this concept of work, I think, is an interesting thing to consider because he even includes when he talks about work, it's not just getting food a lot of the times. It's also including things like what we might consider chores, taking care of certain things, taking care of kids and, and things of that nature. I think what unfortunately has also happened is the things we prioritize have become backwards in a way. So we think about work as the most important thing, and then we have to fit everything else in, right? So, okay, you need to have this job, and then you have to work this many hours a week, and then uh, find a way to take care of your kids. Or as a society, let's try to find ways to take care of the kids, but the work can't change, or the ways that we work can't change. And you would almost hope it would be the other way around. Let's take care of the kids and make sure children are okay and uh, get the parental care they need and the supervision they need and the education they need. And then let's let's work everything around that, you know, those basic things, those values. And that's something that, again, reading this book and seeing that human history, we've created the world we live in now. It's not just based on natural things. Yes, there's a lot of natural forces at play, but to think that the world as it is today has to be how it is today because of, of um, you know, uh, something natural is definitely not the case. I think there's a quote by Nelson Mandela, something about, I think, poverty is man-made, <sighs> something like that. But nonetheless, I, I should have said it without knowing it, but I totally agree with that, that our the poverty that we see existing in today's society is not some natural thing that people have to be so poor and some people so rich. Absolutely not. Again, hunter-gatherer tribes who are still alive and previous generations or previous ancestors did not have this extreme type of discrepancy. So it's not some natural innate thing of being human that we need these extremes. And sometimes the argument to that is, oh, you think everything should be perfectly equal exactly? No. So it's not a black or white thing, but we don't need extremes of inequality don't make sense. So again, when we have a surplus of things uh, to survive and some people are still not having enough and they die because of 
a lack of having those things, we should be very upset about that. That should not be okay. We should not accept that. And, and so that's what I think is, for me, important to keep in mind is the world we live in, although it seems so real in the sense that it has to be this way, it doesn't have to be this way. When we see the history, we see that uh, that's not the case. So when we look at the advent of agriculture, then slowly that led to cities. I won't get into all of the details of that, and I, I probably can't do it, obviously, as well as the book will do it. So I hope you will read the book. Uh, this started to change the ways that we related to work. And also the field of economics started to come about around this time when there was uh, scarcity. And so that was actually one of the problems that economics was trying to figure out was this issue of scarcity. How do we overcome it? And that's what a lot of economic theory comes from, um, is focusing on scarcity. And so he even gets into that, that, that economics, in a way he does, I want to say talk bad about it because that's not true, but some of the assumptions that it seems that uh, economists have or economic theory has, he does challenge, and I think rightfully so, to be aware of how we value things. Because what started to, you know, I've talked about this before in my brother Parham, PhD in economics, so he always is teaching me, but sometimes I give him my novice theories of, of certain things. Um, but one of the things I think is really negative about the field of economics is that money, things like, and also GDP, but money becomes the most important thing. So if you do something and you get less money out of it, you are being irrational. Uh, even, you know, uh, Cass Sunstein wrote, I think he is a behavioral ec economist, but uh, who's one of the authors of the next book. But you're irrational if you do something that makes less money because money is somehow the most important thing. Now, I know they'll talk about utility and other things that are important as well, but there's a way that money became this most important of things and, and everything. If you could have more of it, then you should keep having more of it. And I talked about this recently, that if I tell you someone in their home has thousands of newspapers in their house from 30 years ago, they have everyone still, and it's all over the place, or they keep them in some garage even, and, and you know they have all these, you're going to say, oh, this person's a hoarder, they have a big mental issue and a big problem, because they have all this stuff that they don't need, it's, it's a waste. But if someone has... $300 billion, we praise them and we put them on the cover, covers of magazines and make a list of who are the richest people in the world. But in a way, there is something similar there. They have all this wealth, something that they can't even use and do anything with. So they're hoarding money. But because again, money has been given this type of exempt function or status that more money is always good no matter what. Um, we praise these people, we celebrate them, and everyone thinks they should aspire to be the richest person in the world. And so because of that, we actually praise these people that we can even say, well, why do you need so much of those things? Again, if people are dying and you have some things, shouldn't we rethink how we're doing things? And of course, for all of us, many of us, myself included, have more than I need. Shouldn't we be taking care of others? Um, but so it's some things to think about how we prioritize things, what we celebrate in our world, and how at times it could be very sick and unhealthy what we praise and, and how we look at things. Um, you know, when we talk about work and issues with work, we can talk about uh, being a workaholic. And that came up in the book too. People who have literally in more modern times worked themselves to death. 
Um, and he shared some stories about those types of people, which gives us an insight into how we work ourselves literally to death because we think that that's the most important thing and the only thing that matters. And being a workaholic, of course, there's individual factors as well. Sometimes people in a way unconsciously or consciously choose to be a workaholic because they don't want to face other parts of life. So in a stereotypical way, uh, traditionally that the man who stayed at the office because he didn't want to come home to his wife and kids, not just because he had to work or wanted to be at work. Um, that at times is happening, but also we live in a society where if you're working at some kind of places, 60, 70 hours, you have to show that you're working more than the other people to get ahead, this kind of competitive landscape, but really it's very sick and unhealthy the ways that we are, are working. So um, that was also brought up in the book, which I think is an important uh, point of how we are working. I did want to also add the parts about What's going to happen in the future? So in the title, it says from the stone age to the age of robots. And this is something that people have written a lot about. Many great thinkers have have been thinking about this big issue of as we move into the world where automation replaces many jobs and in that sense replaces many workers, what's going to happen? What are people going to do? You know, there's some estimates that depending on which ones you look at, 30% 30% of jobs, 40% of jobs, uh, huge chunks of the jobs that people are currently doing at a certain point in the near future can be replaced by robots or AI or different types of technology, and there will no longer be a need for humans to do them. And I think it is important for us to ponder these questions and prepare and to be aware that this is going to happen. I do have an optimistic outlook because some of that mindset that creates that anxiety about what's going to happen, again, in, in some level, rightfully so, it comes from this notion that people should be working 40 hours a week. So do we have enough things for people to do to work 40 hours a week? So I think that can change the amount that people work. Um, I think he talks about Keynes and how he was saying in some utopia in the future, when you when we are able to take care of our basic needs, people won't have to work as much. And he actually, I think without knowing about hunter-gatherers, said 15 hours a week would be the typical work week. So I think that will hopefully start to change. I also think there are so many you know, sectors when we're talking about like workplace, but there's so many job sectors that require human beings. And of course, with technology advancing, maybe even some of them can be replaced. But there are human to human types of um, ways that people can connect or need help. Um, so one of the ways that I think is very important is Individuals, for example, who have disabilities or some special needs where they can use or even need some types of assistance to to get through their days. And they need a human to do that or humans to do that. Maybe, you know, people work different shifts. But that's one example of the type of a job uh, that already exists. But I think why not have even more people filling these roles or even doing more to support those um, who maybe need some type of an assistance, let's say, uh, or different ways of human to human contact. So I think, yes, there'll be robots that can talk to people and do all sorts of types of things, but human relationships will still be fundamental and foundational to how we live. And this goes back to this concept of work, you know, 
as I mentioned, we could look at work as how you capture energy to then survive or to expend that energy in different ways. But if we take a step back and just think of what do we value as human beings? What do we want society to look like? We could think that there's lots of work, so to speak, quote unquote, that we've been neglecting, some of which I, I mentioned earlier. Things like childcare and allowing parents to be with their children. So if we can take care of the basic necessities more easily, if machines can take care of certain jobs, well, I think that would be a great uh, time for us to use that surplus time that we would now have this extra time that was not available, you know, the manpower, woman power that we have to focus on human relationships, human connections, and that aspect of life that I think we've neglected. And so to me, there's an interesting kind of circle, uh, you know, pardon the Lion King type of pun, circle of life um, that we've experienced. So the hunter-gatherers that I was describing that are still alive, but if we look at the ancestors in a lot of societies where we're no longer hunter-gatherers, they spend time with each other. And so if they only needed about 15 hours to, you know, procure what they needed and to take care of gathering food and doing all of the chores and things of that nature, well, they had a lot more time to connect and to be together. But then we thought we were advancing with the technology that we were doing, but actually because of the ways we advanced and the problems that that created, we actually made it so we had less time to connect and to be with one another, which is very sad. And so that's what we've experienced for a lot of more modern human history, that we've had less time to to be with loved ones, to, to be together for childcare. You know, there's been times in last 100, 200 years where, oh, you know, child children should just be raised all together in some orphanage or somewhere away from their parents because they don't need to be close to them. Now, you know, that's very not true. But we've created a world where those things have not been the priority. And I hope that we will shift our priorities and recognize if we have more time, it's not going to be wasted because what is work is really taking care of one another or getting to the business of being human is work when we think of what we should be doing. We should be connecting with one another, having parents able to spend time with their children, long periods of time, especially when they're babies and as they're growing up, we can create that world. I know it sounds very much like a utopia and idealistic, but to me, it's very possible and very realistic as well that we can move towards that and realize, but it would take some huge shifts in how we view things and also huge shifts in people who have power relinquishing some of the power that they currently have in the way that things are set up to see that we are prioritizing things wrong, that we can reimagine human society in lots of ways. And that I hope that as we come full circle, we'll allow technology to again allow us to spend more time with one another, to connect with our loved ones, to be with our families, um, to get to the real work of being human, which is connecting with one another. And so I hope the pandemic, uh, of course, it's been tragic in the lives that have been lost and all the other casualties that have happened because of it. Um, so it's not something that we wanted in any way. I do hope that when we rush back to normal with things opening up, you know, vaccines making it so people can get back to the way things were, we also consider the things we don't want to be that same way. 
on an individual level, but a societal level as well. Should we rush back to people being in offices 50, 60 hours a week and away from families when that's not necessary? Should we rush back to the inequalities, which got worse actually during the pandemic and not recognize how unhealthy that is? And when we have to fight a disease, in this case, altogether, we can come together for the well-being of others, even if we might feel like we're sacrificing in some way. But doesn't that really make sense? in making a better world for everyone. So, so I hope we will consider and reconsider some of these things. And I know it can sound like a utopia and unrealistic and an idealistic type of way of looking at things, but really I don't think it is that idealistic. And I'm fairly certain that at some point in the future we will get there. I just hope we will do the work to make that happen sooner rather than much later. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. <music> Welcome back. So I wanted to end the show, you know, uh, before I actually get into that, talking about the book Work by James Suzman, I was saying how we can take care of each other better than we have been. And actually, our quote unquote primitive ancestors, or even people who we think are living in an uncivilized way because they don't have cities and the types of technologies we use, in my opinion, they're much more civilized and advanced than we are in a moral sense, because they do a better job of taking care of all of their people, all of their citizens. So even though they have less than we have now, because now we have lots of surpluses, they still have managed to take care of one another better and to make sure no one in their society is left out or not taken care of. And so that can relate to the topic I wanted to talk about now to end the show. So today, May 17th is International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. So essentially, International Day Against Not Accepting or Being Against People Who Are Not Heterosexual and Cisgender or um, the Traditional Genders That People Think About. And um, I saw some people post about this and I posted on my own Instagram and wanted to talk about it tonight because so going back to this concept of accepting and taking care of of everyone we know that there are still many oppressed groups that we have in our current society i talk about about race and racism a lot uh, because we see that in the united states still and around the world but also the lgbtq community still experiences considerable amount of discrimination even in the United States, but around the world. And so having these types of days, I know there's a lot of these International Day for this, International Day of the Woman and that, and sometimes people can think, well, what's, why does it matter? And it's not that just having that day itself is going to change everything, but it is about bringing about awareness and talking about these things. And to me, it's heartbreaking that we have to have days like this because it's a reminder that we're not taking care of everyone, that certain individuals continue to experience strong discrimination. And um, it's not just trivial things. Well, actually, it's not even trivial for people to call you, let's say names is actually really horrible, or more subtle things that people might think happen in the United States. Serious things happen here. But sadly, um, it was brought to my attention last week that a 20-year-old uh, Iranian gay man named uh, Ali Reza Fazalim Monfared was killed and it appears he was killed by his own family members 
in a type of quote-unquote honor killing because they found out that he was gay. And um, when I read the story, I was just heartbroken. Even right now, it's hard to talk about the 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 situation because you see pictures of him and he's just he's a 20 year old and he's being himself so young and his family to think that he was a dishonor by being who he is born the way he is and wanting to be himself and that it would be honorable to kill him is just mind-boggling to me and is a reminder of how much work we still have to do and so when we see something like this International Day against homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, it's necessary because these things are still happening. People still have to even fear, literally fear for their lives in many other countries. And this young man was just was killed. And again, to think that him just being himself was dishonorable and to kill him was honorable is so incredibly backwards that we have to really think about where we are and i think this is why it's important for everyone of course if you are a member of the lgbtq community to if you can speak out on it or speak up about who you are and i hope you can uh, of course be proud but not just about you being proud have the space to be proud to be who you are and to be yourself Um, but even if you're not a member of that community to be an ally meaning that you talk about and stand up for people who are uh, members of this community because they're members of the human race. And I think it's sad that we still are trying to figure out who deserves to be taken care of, who deserves to have rights uh, in different ways, when really all human beings deserve all human rights. We, we shouldn't have to, to think about it. it. It's happened so much. Even in my lifetime, I've seen discussions about gay marriage in in the united states and in california i think it was the 2008 election there was something on the ballot about that that actually didn't pass it was um against gay marriage that 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 was actually voted for and that was just you know 12 and a half years ago um and these things might also seem subtle people say oh marriage is not a big deal why do we have to care about that or it's not something significant but it's sending a message when we tell certain parts of our population that you can't do everything you don't have all of the rights so if someone said oh we want to make a law where iranians cannot go to malls on thursdays or can't buy this kind of property or do something even if it was something small that wouldn't change most people's lives i would be very against it because it's discriminating against a certain group and that's telling them that they are somehow less than other people in the group that's where the problem lies not some people you know the jokes oh yeah getting married is something bad or you you know people are miserable when they're married anyway so don't you know they're not missing out on anything that's not the point the point is when we separate a certain group and say you can't do something you don't have the right to do something we are somehow telling them you are less than everyone else and there's research supporting this uh, that i saw a few years ago that found that in states where they passed gay marriage they made it legal they saw a decrease in suicides for lgbtq youth 
which is really powerful. And they, they try to make it very um, thorough to make sure it wasn't just correlational or just random because they had some states where it was passing, some where it was not. Uh, but it makes sense because that law is somehow telling these youth, as they're maybe becoming aware of their sexuality or understanding it, that somehow, you know what, you're not quite like everyone else. You won't be able to get married, actually, because you're different. You're not okay the way you are. And of course, people even still disown individuals who are LGBTQ. That's why we see higher rates of homelessness amongst, even in the United States, in the United States, LGBTQ youth. Um, there's still those types of pressures that are going on. So just these laws changing, in a way we're saying, and I hope in a way we almost are apologetic, we were wrong to not give you the rights that you deserve to have equal rights like everyone else. And of course, you are like all of us and we we love you. We love all of our citizens. We love our human family. And when we welcome them with open arms, that makes those youth and that makes people feel more welcomed, that I can be the way I am. I can love myself the way I am because the society loves me the way that I am. So what might seem trivial at times to some people of a law or talking about some issue, we see that it's very important. In this case, sadly, in suicide, people taking their own lives when they don't feel like they are uh, accepted. But in this case of Ali Reza Monfaret, he's 20 years old. I, I, I want to say it this way. He was 20 years old because he was killed because of his sexuality. This is why these things matter. So I really do hope people will think about these things, talk about these things. In my own lifetime, I've seen progress made in so many um, ways in the United States and even in the Iranian community. Although I do feel that when I speak to families dealing with these types of issues, hear people talking in the general public, as Iranians, we still have strong prejudices against the LGBTQ community. It does exist in the whole world, so I don't want to single just us out that we're doing it so wrong, but we are wrong about this to be against individuals being born the way that they are for being who they are. And there's so many ways to be. And so when you hear people make jokes, if you hear people talking about members of the LGBTQ community, of course, if you have friends or family members who are please make an effort to make them feel loved and supported to be who they are. And of course, if you are a member of the LGBTQ community in any uh, culture, but if you're an Iranian, I hope you will reach out to others and I hope you do feel supported and loved to be who you are because people are born so many different ways and so many different things. And uh, I think I was talking before about the future and how I think people will look at things. I think this is one of the things that will change in the future. And I'm, I mean, it's already happening, but I think we'll get there someday soon where it won't even be looked at as, as something that will be such a big deal. Uh, you know, I saw something someone posted recently about coming out, coming out of the closet. And they were saying that, you know, I don't even like this term or saying that I came out of the closet because the closet was something that society built around me. 
society told me I had something about me that I had to hide, which now I realize it's nothing for me to hide. And, and so when I read this person sharing that, it was so powerful for me because, yes, society has been wrong and stupid to make people feel that they should hide their sexuality because it's different from what we think is the only way or the right way to be. We told them they should be ashamed of that. It's nothing bad about them. It's something bad about society. And as I wrote on my uh, Instagram post, if you hate any group of people, it reflects negatively on you, not on them. So if you don't like gay people and you think it makes you so whatever, you're the one that is looking bad and you're the one that's reflecting something bad about you, not that there's something bad about that group. So this day against homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia, uh, really, and even people have talked about this word phobia, it almost sounds like it's like an illness or something they're afraid of, which they maybe should be afraid of, but really it's about hate and not accepting and lack of tolerance. So it's not just a, like a fear. So saying transphobia means hating trans people or not accepting trans people, not being tolerant of trans people. This isn't something that reflects good on you. It's reflecting something that's missing in you and understanding other human beings and judging them for being who they are and thinking that it should matter. But I do hope and I do imagine a future where it won't be coming out of the closet won't even be a thing because we have reached some level of acceptance and tolerance. I don't even like tolerance. I understand it has meaning because people have not always been tolerated. But tolerance is not enough. We want everyone to feel accepted and loved. I've worked with some families or seen some families that tolerate their gay son or lesbian daughter, but they don't fully accept them as in, let's say, bringing their partner to a family gathering or telling other family members even about their sexual orientation. So they've tolerated them and that they haven't kicked them out fully in the family, but they haven't fully accepted them. So Tolerance is an early step, but that's, of course, necessary. We should be tolerating, but loving and accepting all members of our community. So uh, I was heartbroken um, to, to see the story about uh, Ali Reza Monfarad, who was only 20 years old and his life was taken by his own family members um, for being gay. And so this is why we have to keep talking about these issues. We have to keep being allies for all human beings. But today I wanted to discuss the LGBTQ community because they're still in need of support and rightfully so. All human beings deserve all human rights and all human beings deserve the right to live. We should not be, uh, you know, treating them in this type of negative way. So I, I was really heartbroken, wanted to bring that up today this sad story, but I hope it will inspire all of us to continue being allies and fighting for justice and fighting for, for everyone to, to get the love and acceptance they deserve. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.